You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Sectarian Review Podcast, a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. We discuss culture, history, art, politics, and religion in order to better understand the systems and institutions that cloud our vision of this life. Keep up with the conversation and add to it by liking our Facebook page, following us on Twitter, and visiting our website at sectarianreviewpodcast.com. Also, if you like the show, don't forget to leave a nice rating and review at iTunes. And if you ever get the urge to join in for an episode or two, contact us with your ideas. Listeners make the best contributors. Now for the show. Well, we've done it. We have a show for you today that is actually relevant. An actor's only job is to enter the lives of people who are different from us and let you feel what that feels like. And there were many, many, many powerful performances this year that did exactly that. Breathtaking, compassionate work. But there was one performance this year that stunned me. It it sank its hooks in my heart. Not because it was good. It was, there was nothing good about it. But it was effective and it did its job. It made its intended audience laugh and show their teeth. It was that moment when the person asking to sit in the most respected seat in our country imitated a disabled reporter, someone he outranked in privilege, power, and the capacity to fight back. It, it kind of broke my heart when I saw it, and I still can't get it out of my head because it wasn't in a movie. It was real life. And this instinct to humiliate when it's modeled by someone in the public platform, by someone powerful. It filters down into everybody's life because it kind of gives permission for other people to do the same thing. Disrespect invites disrespect. Violence incites violence. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. That was, of course, the great Meryl Streep this week with a Golden Globe speech that made some headlines. Streep's eloquent and thoughtful words were powerful, and they immediately elicited powerful reactions from all over our political spectrum. For every liberal cheering them on, there was a Travis Tritt going hilariously apoplectic on Twitter somewhere. And it just so happens that this last week I had the chance to talk to C. Derek Varn about such subjects, and I'd like to share that with you now. Derek has been a longtime listener of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, and you'll frequently hear his input during listener feedback episodes of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I discovered him uh, via the sadly now defunct Symptomatic Redness Podcast, and as such, he comes at such questions as these from an unusual perspective for our network. Let me apologize up front for some connection issues that arise as the show goes on. Derek lives in Egypt, and uh, what can I say? We're in a hurry. Uh, Hopefully you'll find him as interesting as I did anyway. As always, let me know via our Facebook page, which I hope you've liked by now. Here's the show. Hi, so, yeah, I'm a podcaster, uh, podcast guest, like, almost now I'm almost a semi-professional podcast guest. I'm a reader for Zero Books, um... And I am an educator in English and the humanities. Um, I'm also sort of a internet infamous Marxist, which I guess is a very particular place to be. <laughs> who's interested in the development of of uh, historical philosophies and religion? So, you know. So that's my gig. That makes you perfect for the show, uh, also, um, and and also I think that that your Marxism. You bring a really interesting critique to liberalism, and, and so I think that that is a um, uh, one reason I asked you to talk about this subject today. Uh, so let me get right into the first question. I want to get as much out of you as I can. So everybody's got a theory of everything of sorts that explains Trump's election, which seems kind of like a chasing after the wind to me, frankly. Uh, and so today I just want to focus on some of liberalism's failings, and specifically its tendency to defer its rhetorical work, I guess, to celebrities. And I can see the roots of this in the whole Jane Fonda Vietnam thing. Am I wrong to place so much of this on the new left? 
No, you're not. Um, you know, I, I tend to think a lot of the sins of contemporary liberalism and leftism, and for your audience, I don't consider those two things the same thing, come from about 1965 forward. Um, n now, with the the kind of cynical use of celebrities, that was originally sort of a, a change in tactics, um, kind of by the far left. In the in the late in the late 1960s, to get word out to what they saw as otherwise the suppressed or marginal views, because there's these members of the counterculture that did have a lot of cultural capital, they could get those ideas out. The problem with this, though, you know, is immediately apparent if you think about what liberalism is trying to appeal to. So, so while this is kind of leftism and liberalism has been conflated after after McCarthy as one thing. Um, the kind of, they had people, including people on the left and liberals have kind of actually believed it so much so that like songs like love me, I'm a liberal no longer make as much sense. Yeah. Um, so once you got that done, you see a lot of these tactics going back and forth, but part of the appeal of enlightenment liberalism is that it's supposed to be a rational ideology. Um, it's supposed to be an individually rational ideology. That's what it comes from, from the Enlightenment. And when you appeal through celebrity discourse, you're actually undercutting your very appeal structure. Now, I tend to think that the rational, you know, the rationalism and liberalism is kind of a facade anyway. It's more of a rationalization. But you, you just think from the immediate contradiction of this, you're, you're claiming that you're making a rational um, appeal to politics while at the same time having to make what is in classical parlance an ethos appeal, which is to have someone with a credibility back mm -hmm. you up. But it's not anyone with credibility specific to what you're actually talking about. Yeah. So it looks transparently opportunistic. <laughs> and conservatives immediately pick up on this. I mean, a lot of regular people who are actually maybe liberally inclined resent this, too. Um, is it also a, a, an emotional appeal, though? Uh, isn't there something about celebrities that speak to our kind of desires and, and, and loves? And, and is, is it also not kind of... It's almost then like the liberal version of Fox news, which is entirely like an emotional appeal in terms of its rhetoric. So isn't the reliance on celebrity, not only an ethical appeal, the ethos, like you said, but also kind of an emotional appeal. Oh yeah. It's an appeal to aspirations and authority. Um, but aspirations and authority, they really don't have anything to do with anything. I mean, Jane Fonda, authority on on the vietnam war was what exactly <laughs> well kill barbarella i mean i don't know i mean and and, and hollywood's liberalism and i'm almost going to sound like a conservative on this point is but it is based on a certain moral narrative that people kind of find appealing but isn't really true Mm. And that is that there's been a great march of progress of which, you know, Western civilization has been headed. And if we only get rid of these few original sins from our past, you know, racism, sexism, whatever, that this march of progress will will continue. I mean, it's actually kind of a crypto eschatological view. Mm. Um, and. To get into the political theology of it a minute for a minute, I mean, I think Christians in particular should be wary of this, you know, um, because the idea that you know we a complicated imperialistic civilization, but it's really actually all in the main and the good, um, is kind of what's being appealed to in these particularly contemporary celebrity endorsements. I mean, because the other thing about this, and, and this is where this liberal celebritism has kind of changed. Um, Jane Fonda comes out of the countercultural movement, but when you get to stuff like John Oliver and The Daily Show, they're actually claiming to represent 
you know, the culture, mm. like mainstream opinion. Think about after occupying John Stewart and Colbert's whole, uh, you know, can't we just all get along rally? You know, they were they weren't claiming to be against the culture. They were claiming to be the actual representatives of it. Mm. On what grounds, who knows? But that's what they were doing. Oh, that's interesting. And, and yeah, there is like a difference between the '60s and the in the the '90s. Then at that point, uh, that you're that's I hadn't thought of that uh, distinction, but it's a really striking one. You're right. The counterculture was what sort of drove. That's who you associate all those celebrities with. Um, even Bob Dylan, when he was associated with uh, with protest music for that brief period of his career, uh, like that was a countercultural sort of uh, appeal that he was making. And you're right. And now there is sort of this kind of uh, presentation of it as if it were the mainstream. Uh, and that is uh, right. So, so in that sense, the the whole style of presentation of sort of left liberal. Uh, uh, celebritism has shifted from Jane Fonda to John Wayne. <laughs> and, and if you actually think about conservatism, conservatism's gone the same way. I mean, think about even the branding of alt-right. I don't want to get off on a whole tangent about what the alt-right is or isn't. Um, but it brands itself as a countercultural movement. And honestly... Um, since probably the end of, of the moral majority rhetoric, a lot of conservative, very conservative politically movements have kind of cloaked themselves as, as you know, the actual inheritors of a of the counterculture, yeah. not left liberals. The, I think we really need to think about that. I mean, um, what does that say? that liberalism right now tries to both critique society, you know, but also speak for it. Um, at, not as outside of it, but as act, but as actually the truer representative of it. It's one of those things when they're always taught, you know, that battle about who's real Americans and they're making fun of like the Fox news, Sarah Palin tendency to talk about real America. But most of the counters to that are liberals themselves doing that. Yeah. They are claiming to be real America themselves. Even even when you talk about the electoral college stuff, you get celebrities talking about how we need to abolish the electoral college or we need faithless electors because the majority of people, you know, actually support Clinton. Well, yes, Clinton did win more uh 2 million more votes than than Donald Trump, but she still had less votes than Romney did. <laughs> All right? Yeah. Like, that's something that people don't even look at. So no one's speaking for the majority of America. There's barely a plurality when you look at voting election election outcomes because 45% of the population hardly ever votes for anything. Yeah, and particularly in midterms. Right. So what are, what are you speaking to when you're claiming to be the majority of, the, of American society? It appears that the majority of American society has actually opted out. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and I, I wonder if some of that is traced to the kind of aversion and the kind of uh, cynicism that this kind of reliance on celebrity spokespeople has has in, in, engendered in, within people. Um, I recently read something somewhere. Uh, it sounds like something Jacobin would have uh, <laughs> posted, but I can't remember where I read it. Uh, that basically talks about uh, these sort of celebrity feminisms and these celebrity uh, whatever. Uh, they're basically there to support existing power structures and give it kind of a nice facade. Uh, and, and I think that explains some of the lack of Hillary Clinton's appeal uh, within these constituencies that she lost, that Obama had been able to hold on to um, over the last couple of election cycles. Um, am I am I wrong about that? I don't think so. I mean, it, it, the thing about Obama is Obama's policies are in some ways immensely unpopular um, because there aren't really many of his policies. The He 
wasn't able to utilize for whatever reason, and this isn't the subject of this podcast, I don't really want to go too deep into it. He wasn't able to utilize a supermajority of his own party because his own party wasn't very unified. So the only thing they could get done really was the ACA, and the ACA was so compromised from the beginning that it was going to be unpopular. Obama even knew that and said things to that uh, said things to that gist, but was hoping um, that the continuation of democratic rule over the executive could at least lead to someone attempting to correct it in the future, which was kind of a vain hope. Yeah. Um, so, but Obama's personally likable, and he is sort of a celebrity in and of himself. I mean, right. He's he represents the better aspirations of the country. Um, you know, he uh, he's incredibly charming. He seems he seems fairly smart. Um, ideologically, he's been utterly incoherent, even from a liberal perspective. But people are hard, it's hard to call him out on that. I mean, yeah. for a variety of reasons. Not that people haven't, but I mean, it, it, you know, even a lot of his critics, including myself, like him. I mean, I, I've been critical of Obama since before he was elected. Um, you know, it's sort of my job to be the the person <laughs> pointing out that the emperor has no clothes. Curmudgeon, but, we call you sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Our, our, curmudgeon or Marxist are both. I mean, you know, bourgeois <laughs> ruling committee of the bourgeoisie and all that. But even then, I still sort of liked him, you know. Like he, I I can't generate the the dislike of the man that the that conservatives tend to have for him. Even you know, um, but that appeal has real limit. Yeah. Well, um, I, that actually uh, is a segue into my third question. Let me just skip over the second one for now. In liberalism, there seems to be a divide between believing and doing and the whole celebrity thing is kind of a convenient way to rally behind a belief that requires no action therefore like obama is a likable person right um and it's separate from his policies there's there's sort of a a a, a disjuncture right there and it leads me to wonder what we even mean when we say politics is celebrity activism really politics or is it just posturing well, let me ask you a question. Is posturing politics that separate in the liberal mind? Well, that's I guess that's the basis of my question. Is there is I mean, it's almost uh, like the I, evangelical um, belief system. Like I believe something is wrong, like abortion, and therefore I am justified. That doesn't require me to actually do anything. And I think it shares that quality with some liberal beliefs about race. I think or, you're totally correct and i'm gonna i'm gonna make your audience a little bit uncomfortable um i think this is an expansion and dilution of the of of the christian mindset particularly from the protestant circles liberalism itself comes out of two things the advent of capitalism and the end of the religious wars of the 15th century it is the longest standing current ideology conservatism as we understand it only exists because liberalism does mm. and conservatism itself is actually in the main um a liberal ideology mm -hmm. which i know is going to confuse your listeners but it is the liberalism of whatever was popular a hundred years ago and that also can be religious i mean you think about evangelicals which has become a vanguard political marker, marker, and I say vanguard, vanguard as in the front of the rear guard. Like it almost tells me more about someone's politics and their religious beliefs. Mm, oh, absolutely. But the evangelical movement was originally a quote-unquote progressive movement within Christianity. I mean, it's it's hard for us to imagine this now, but William Jennings Bryant was a proto-socialist and an evangelical fundamentalist. Hmm. And those two things don't make sense to the contemporary mind um, because socialism has been so linked to Marxism. And, you know, I am a Marxist and and that has good and bad implications even for me. But but, you know, the progressive movement in evangelicals actually came out of a lot of the same. The same milieu. So belief becomes more and more important, and particularly in the age of media, it's not even a belief, it's belief signaling. Mm. So what beliefs do you signal? How do you show things? And the way we talk about, say, structural and racial oppression 
in in America now is even in terms of things that are totally individuated. So we talk about you know s- systemic racism, but in terms of individual privilege. When you really look at that, that framework doesn't really make sense. When we talk about the uh, you know uh, Peggy McClintock's individual NATSAC argument, you know, that is the basis for the entire way we talk about racial oppression in the 90s to now. That argument is based on an individual realization and an individual's place in a system and an individual acknowledging that and trying to undo that. But that's all based on individuals. That's a very liberal way of looking at the world. And liberal individuation comes, in my mind, from Protestant individuation. Hmm. Now, this is not to say that liberalism is Christianity. It's not. Um, but does it does it does it surprise you that a post-Protestant society like the United States would manifest its politics in this way? And it doesn't really surprise me. No, and and it makes me every time uh, in the in this mania with the Trump's election on the on the 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 whatever the the new left at least the uh, I, I with you on the show I don't even know if I can use the term left I'm gonna be fumbling around for terms here but uh, you know what I'm talking about um, <laughs> yes um, but well, uh, I will concede your popular discourse for the sake of your audience thank you yes I, yeah I, I just can't think of a term that actually fits what I'm describing at this point um, in the context of this conversation but all of the uh, whenever you see uh, folks on the, the the current left the popular left they um, uh, uh, really like to disparage religion, right, as the cause of all these problems. And I see a lot of what their rhetoric and discourse is doing is mimicking that of, of the very religious beliefs that they're mocking, right? I think there's a lot oh, yeah. of dogmatism uh, within yeah. this. Uh, and, and a lot of this we covered in a recent episode we did on political correctness with Nathan Gilmore and, and Jordan Poss. Um, and your uh, observation about the the shared kind of uh, genesis between modern conservatism and liberalism, if uh, any of our listeners want to go back and listen to some of the early episodes of the network City of Man podcast, uh, Coyle and Ed, they do a really good job of kind of breaking down those um, those genealogies. Uh, and because I think you're right. Yeah. They, they you come from a very similar place. They, they, they might both be uh, hardened and terrified that I enjoy their show, but feel sadly that there's no proper socialist perspective represented. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think progressive and socialist are actually as related as people think they are. And, well, and I think it's becoming more and more obvious. Uh, point. Yeah. Um, those genealogies are important, though. I mean... Uh, the instantiation of of uh, liberalism as we know it comes out of two things, which is um, French anti-clericalism and, Pro- and liberal Protestantism. Um, and French anti-clericalism is sort of the reaction to the reaction to the reaction. I mean, it seems itself to be a very Catholic response, but it's a Catholic response out of the counter-reformation before the counter-reformation something like Diderot's anti-clericalism doesn't even seem possible Mm. um and that's you know that's the deep history of it now what do we see right now well right now you see a lot of of very conflicting signals out of contemporary liberals and out of contemporary liberal celebrities so, like I said, they're claiming to represent the mainstream society while also critique it. They're claiming, you know, um, to that. Well, I mean, they're claiming other things like systemic oppression is keeping um, certain social groups and um, socially constructed groups, like racial groups and uh, gender groups, from fully participating in elections. Yet, also saying that they're increased demographic size will lead to their automatic victory yeah well that's actually two contradictory positions (laughs) yeah i I tried to create a meme that didn't take off uh i took the uh the image from uh the graduate about plastics plastics and tried to change it to demographics demographics but it didn't take off (laughs) 
Um, you know, well, it's one of those things that people don't want to really deal with is the fact that if race is socially constructed, who counts as white changes. And what you're seeing right now, particularly in the Hispanic community, is the whiteification of that community. Um, that's both progressive in the sense that there's an expanding circle, but it also means that that whole demographic argument isn't going to hold up. Yeah. And it, um, it, it reduces people to one aspect of their person, right? And so the, the liberals uh, tend to think of Hispanics as um, on their side because of race, and therefore race is the most important thing to them, or ethnicity, um, when in fact many right. Hispanic, Hispanic people... Hispanic isn't even a racial category. Right, right. <laughs> um, and when in fact, though, they also, that, that demographic tends to be quite religious, which stands in uh, stark opposition to many of the, the platform uh, uh, statements that the, Demo the Democrats make, right? And so there's a right. contradiction right there. And you see, like, if you really want to dig into it, I mean, it's a little bit more complicated because identities are more complicated. Hispanic itself is kind of a weird notion. Yeah. So Chicano Americans actually have a very different voting pattern and recognition pattern than Mexican Americans, and both of those groups have different different voting patterns from, say, Cuban Americans. Oh yeah, look at I Florida's Hispanic. Yeah. <laughs> Ted Cruz is Cuban, so is Marco Rubio. I mean, like... Yeah. Um, and that itself has a historical contingency based on the specters of a certain kind of communism. Um, and these things all get flushed out when we just talk about demographics like that. Mm. But it wasn't... I mean, like, when we looked at the Trump vote, for example, 30, between 28 and 30% of the Hispanic vote went to Trump. That should terrify right. Democrats. Right. Um, and that's, that's, you know, not knowing what the majority of Hispanic potential voters think because they didn't vote at all. Yeah. But it wasn't, you know, people would say, well, it's just the Cubans in Florida, but it wasn't. All right. Um, views coming out of different parts of Latin America are much more complicated then contemporary liberalism tends to write because that complication undoes their narrative. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, ask people their opinions on Venezuela and you'll start getting into some real <laughs> complications. I mean, even liberals yeah. don't, don't know how to feel about that. Right. So, you know, how do you handle all that? And, and the thing is, you're not meeting people as people. You're meeting people as, as ends. And this is something that mm. the other trend of the progressive uh, – the, and I'm going to use progressive here because I'm, progressive to me is a subset of liberalism. Um, I tend to use liberalism to refer to every, everything post-enlightenment that's based on individuation. Mm. But um, – so progressive progressives here tend to uh, really sort of only see this as a you know and and they look at they look at these trends but they see them as dots on a spectrum and they'll try to pin it to an element of identity and things are much more complicated than that. I mean, um, class matters a lot as does. Uh, as does region, and region matters a whole lot. I mean, it's you meet plenty of progressives in the South, but their influence politically is vastly different because the structure of voting is vastly different from state to state. Right. So trying to generalize about any of this and some narrative about like the you know Trumpism is going to really make it hard, and even narratives like oh. If, if, you know, there was no electoral college or the electoral college was proportional, Hillary Clinton would have won. We actually don't know that mm. because the, the incentives for voting changed dramatically in a popular vote. And it's popular vote systems in countries as large as ours, if you learn from Latin America, tend to lead to civil wars. Mm. Um. The Latin American countries do not have anything like an electoral college fix. If you look at the history of Guatemala, 
history of Mexico, they tended to either end up with um, urban parties becoming basically dictatorships um, and pretty corrupt ones. You see that in the pre in Mexico. Or they ended up with stuff like in Guatemala and Colombia where there's just multiple civil wars because different elements, far left and far right and center right, feel like they can't get represent, representation because of the dominance of an urban vote, so they take to the military. Yeah. I mean, and I don't, th- I don't think people think this out. I know this is part of the popular narrative. And again, this is not as obviously related to celebritism, but it kind of is. Because the celebrity appeal is based on a false notion of rationality being subverted by its own appeal. I mean, but it's a very false notion of rationality. The, the idea that you could send George Clooney out to Georgia to talk everybody into believing in being good Democrats <laughs> is about a, a patri- uh, patronizing and uh, notion as there could possibly be. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, I know. So I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and it, it was like a year of oh, every four year rite of passage that Bruce Springsteen would come and play a concert in, uh, for whoever was running for the Democrats. Right. Uh, and I love Bruce Springsteen. But uh, but yeah, that is but there is a, a bit of a patronizing sort of uh, element to that. Right. And people don't respond well to that. And, and the other thing is, is, is the focus on how the messaging has gotten more and more incoherent. So I think you wanted to talk to me about a current affairs article. Yeah, uh, you shared an article recently from Current Affairs that was called Bad Ways to Criticize Trump. Uh, And John Oliver was a specific target of that piece's scorn. What's the essential problem with daily show style politics? Well, there's a couple of things. One, it's a smug, satirical way of pointing out the contradictions of uh, of your opponents while like just not dealing with the contradictions of yourself. Yeah. Um. But you know, too, you know, specifically it mentions a lot of ways where this messaging backfires. So, so you go out into the countryside and you were talking about the you know the plight of poor voters, right? And then you find some fat, slobby white guy to articulate some dumb some dumb opinion that you can mock right from the safety of California or New York you know and you hear stuff like you know tea party stan and stuff like that well you know to most people that looks like you're mocking the very people you're claiming to represent yeah you're claiming to help the poor so you're always hearing people talk about well you know the poor are voting against their best interest Right. Well, when you're mocking them like that, they don't trust your interest in them. Hmm. Um, Or even stuff like fat shaming Trump or Trump. Yeah, the whole Trump shaming is terrible unless you're talking about a symbolic statue of Trump with his balls cut off. (laughs) Or, you know, we're not supposed to make fun of people with foreign sounding names. But let's make fun of the fact that Trump had a German-sounding name and thus might be tied to Nazis. Yeah. It's, that's that's cynical. So cynical and counterproductive because you're claiming that you're, you know, we believe in integration, we believe in futures or whatever, but it becomes transparent that you do for certain people and not others. Right. Yeah, and you're uh, – and it, it – that is a – it didn't just that arise. That was particularly and... ludicrous coming out of John, you know, coming from people who know John Stewart, because John Stewart had to change his name. Right. <laughs> Leibowitz, right? Is that his name? Right. Yeah. I mean, and actually, Trump tried to play that up. Yeah. Too. But the, my 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 whole point, my whole point about that is like, that's transparently hypocritical. Yeah. Yeah, and it and it undermines stated. Uh, ideals uh and so you have the uh every time a a female conservative runs like michelle bachman like they are like an open subject for mockery uh right and yet that would be called sexist if it were done by a conservative 
Right. I mean, and not that the conservatives care. I mean, that's the other thing. Sure. Like, calling a conservative sexist is they're going to just be like, so? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it's... <laughs> Uh, it's not. It's not because not because they really believe they're sexist, but because they don't trust your definition of it anyway. Right. I mean, so how's that going to help you? You're almost like giving them a badge of honor. It's like they can brag about how you called them sexist and they put it on the back of their book. <laughs> I mean, before I, I think about Glenn Beck before the Trump era. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah, new Glenn Beck is a strange thing, right there. That is, yeah. Right. But old Glenn Beck, you know, used to wear those things like a badge of courage. Yeah. So like, so how's that going to help you? Because you're alienating one demographic of people, which is just common everyday people who just see you contradicting yourself and thus have reasons to take you in bad faith. Hmm. And at the same time, you're, you know, you are positing this to speak for them. And... It's just obvious that you, you're playing by what the, the fascist theorist Carl Smith would call the state of exemption. You're making an exemption for yourself, mm. um, which is, means that you know your sovereignty claims are not actually a sovereignty for the public. They're a sovereignty for your group. Right. And far rightist, and I, by here I'm not even talking about conservatives. Far rightist, like what we call the alt right love when liberals do that because they just say that's what people do so when you do it guess what i can do yeah like i'm going to play the same kind of political exceptions you've given me the legitimacy to do so now they would claim that anyway but they're claiming their claims now have some popular validity because it looks like that's what your what liberals are doing and to be frank they kind of are hmm so, I mean, a progressive should be terrified right now. If a progressive really believed what they said, and I think, like, most of them do, they should be terrified of the kind of contradictions they are finding themselves in to defend their own political power. Because <laughs> it never should have gone this way from their point of view. Right. Yes, the fact that Hillary lost put them in an awful bind as to whether they actually believed the rhetoric <laughs> about democracy and all of this sort of thing. Um, that, that all the kind of high ideals that we've uh, been yeah. hearing for the last 12 months. It was great for me because I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so You've been so rewarded for your cynicism. All right. Yeah, exactly. It's not just that. I mean, like it, it there's, there's a certain amount of just, what you can just see a certain kind of decadence in the position making. I mean, for example, I was listening to uh, the Crack Podcast and I was hearing a, a comedian who writes for NPR. I believe she's queer, um, but I'm not certain. But I, I think I know that from other things, which is all. And she was talking about, you know, when little black girls tear up because of Hillary Clinton running. We should listen. But the problem with that narrative is that uh, most little black girls don't. <laughs> I mean, um, you're speaking for a group with, like, an example of an emotional appeal. Um, and you're trying to say that somehow uh, Hillary Clinton didn't represent power to a lot of people. You know, somehow she's the example of the end of a certain kind of marginalization. And that might be true in some instances, but in a lot of cases it just isn't true, even. You know, I come from Macon, Georgia, which has been a majority and minority city for, I don't know, at least a decade and a half. There are... There is not the love of Hillary Clinton there, even in the black community, that you would maybe think there would be mm. from that perspective of the woman talking. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow some of your listeners' minds. I live in Egypt. You would assume that Egyptians hate Trump, right? Because he's anti-Muslim. Well, 
Western educated Egyptians who are fairly social politically high off and go to American and British schools kind of do. But the average Egyptian does not. Hmm. He's very popular here. Hmm. Because Salafists aren't popular here. And there's a and the geopolitics of the region are much more complicated than people realize. Well, I there think there isn't an idea of Muslims against all that people think there are. Right. I think that is also related to the fact. I, I think that liberalism has this tendency to try to convey its values and its platforms through stories, like you like you were talking about with the the person on NPR. Right. Um, and stories have to necessarily limit something right and, and reduce right. the complexity but they also want to claim universal and rational values yeah yeah i mean so this is this is a contradiction and this is a contradiction that i don't think is unique to liberalism but when you try to uh when you're trying to claim universal rational values um decontextualize the that and i'll get to what i mean by that in a minute yeah um and then also present it narratively you're almost always oversimplifying in a way that, frankly, is kind of dishonest. Yeah. Um, the rest of the world is highly complicated. It's like liberals who are always talking about the Enlightenment of Europe or Canada and then ignore that, you know, uh, what was it that uh, I heard Tanahashi Coates say the first time any white person ever used the N-word towards them was in France in the last year. <laughs> And, um, you know, the, the, the far right has actually more power um, as independent, purist, rightist parties in, in some of these European states than they do in the United States. Well, yeah, get Jeffrey Goldberg a couple of years ago urged all the Jews to leave France, basically, um, uh, because of uh, just rampant anti-Semitism. Right. Well, you know. Modern anti-Semitism is kind of born there. Yeah. Um, the Dreyfus affair being the first instance. Of yeah, it. yeah. I mean, and, and also anti-Muslim sentiment, and and is huge there too. And the the way immigrants have been treated there, and and the way there uh, a lot of the immigration policies work, that's not going to get any better. Just not the same. I'm, I'm criticizing refugees. I'm not. I'm just saying that there's been no effort to to integrate um, those people and give them a stake in the society. There just hasn't been. Hmm. I mean, um, the workers' programs don't really allow citizenship. Well, and the point um, being that the the high-minded idealism of Europe's liberalism is a bit of a facade and a reductive story. Oh yeah, and it's 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 just it's false. I can't believe Americans believe it. I mean, it's. <laughs> it's one of those things like having spent time in Europe and I have almost as many European friends as I do American friends at this point in my life um, the American obsession with it is just sort of strange the same thing with Canada I mean I spent a lot of my young life in Canada the idea that there's some like post-national utopia like <laughs> uh, Justin Trudeau would like you to believe is just, just nonsense it's based on the same settler legacy as the United States are, and in some ways more brutal. The, the lifespan of indigenous peoples in, uh, in both countries is abysmal, and it's actually worse in Canada. Hmm. So it's, it's one of those things where the objective factors don't line up with reality, but you can't break people from those narratives because I guess they want to they model. Um, but the model doesn't exist. And, and this is where, like, I'm going to bring in two critiques, you know, maybe further things a bit. Part of the issue is that liberal, the liberal rational story is utopian. Um, and that, I don't necessarily mean that negatively in, like, you know, the old school Marxist utopian socialist are always wrong sense. I mean, it just wants a society that doesn't yet exist. But... Its narrative is eschatological. 
Hmm. And it's particular to the quote unquote West. It's particular to 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 European post Christian societies. And I, I say that specifically because if you look at what defines the West, you really look deep down. You know what defines the West? It's not even race. It's Christianity. Hmm. Look at where the borderlines of of where we consider acceptable Western thought are. It's Western Christendom. Hmm. Uh, there's at least an intersection there if 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 you're even yeah that's true i mean who we defined as white for a long time was based on quote unquote race and religion um the irish in america for example like uh yeah are are are, are like for example the you know, um my wife is is uh irish and portuguese descended her her family's passports had colored on them hmm. because they were Catholic. But if you were Persian, you were considered white. <laughs> now, that's no longer true, but that's the way it was growing up. And, and race, even in America, is, is so situated to where you're at. So I grew up in the, in the 80s in the South. Hispanics, to me, were white. Anything that wasn't black was white. But when I, you know, when I went up into the north, I discovered that there was all kinds of ethnic tensions that I had no no awareness of. Like who knew that people hated Slavs? Yeah, well, I mean that to me broke up in Cleveland now. I was keenly aware of all that, right? Uh the the right. their ethnic uh, distinctions that challenge our ideas of whiteness in, in a place like Cleveland. Uh, and, and also, liberalism spread to Europe, but European definitions of like white and black are fundamentally different. Right. So, even then, we're not always talking about the same thing. And we should know this, because in our racial... Th- I mean, I'm giving liberalism credit. In the racial theories, it says that these notions are socially constructed. But then it can't deal with the differences between different parts of society because it tries to make, you know, everything into one narrative that's universal. Yeah. Well, that made sense when progressives were Christian. And I'm going to talk about another area where that really shows up. But that doesn't make sense when you're talking about celebrity pills of rationality. It just doesn't hold water. Hmm. And I'll give you where, where this really becomes a problem. All right. The most fundamental, unchallenged question in, in uh, modern liberalism that celebrities are always talking about, and we're staying, trying to stay focused on celebrities, because that's what we want to talk about there, <laughs> um, is human rights. Human rights are based off an appeal to natural law. Natural law is based off an appeal to natural order dependent on God. How do you justify Universal human rights, universally, when you no longer can ground it in a theology. Mm. Because science. It's hard for people to say this. You know, it's hard for people to say this, but like secular defenses of human rights tend to be circular. Why do we need human rights? Because those are dignities that need to be defended. And the state should grant those defense, but those but those rights are inalienable. Well, if they were actually inalienable, how why would you need the state or the UN or whatever to grant them? <laughs> that doesn't make sense in absence of a theological justification. So it's this vestigial Christianity that was already becoming a problem in deism, because deism, you know, is where liberal Protestantism was going. Because but they still believed in natural law. Now, I don't believe in natural law, and I don't think you can justify most of the things we call human rights in human rights talk. Hmm. But if you're a Christian, you have to wonder, you know, are these grounds of liberal progressive of, of liberal progressive talk actually rationally justified? Or are there assumptions in them that are better represented by my own tradition? You know, I, and this was a weird thing where you know, I, I really sometimes would like Christians to actually step up and be Christians. And I'm not <laughs> even a Christian. 
<laughs> because it, a Christian worldview is neither conservative or progressive. It is fundamental to both and separate from both. Hmm. Secularists in other parts of the world. You meet secular people in Korea and Japan. They don't believe the same things as secular people in, in America and Europe. And it's because the religious traditions they are rejecting are fundamentally different. So, you know, it, it's one of those weird things where there could be a, a Christian answer to this, but there isn't. Um, and celebrity, celebritism is almost like the appeal to authority that people used to place in God. Yeah, okay, that's where I was hoping you'd go, yeah. Um, and well, and I have the idea that when we started talking about doing a show together, this came to mind. And frankly, I have an idea that of a whole series for these and certainly evangelical Christian culture has its own, uh, appeal to celebrity authority. Like, uh, and, and there's, oh, yeah. there's a whole industry of celebrity Christians. Well, well, here's the thing about evangelical Christian culture, and I'm going to give you guys some, some crap for a while. I'm not swear. <laughs> um, is that instead of becoming an actual separate counterculture, you generally just mimic bourgeois culture in a labor way. Oh, sure. I mean, it's just like, well, there's Striper, which is hard rock with more Jesus. <laughs> okay. Uh, or there's uh, the Newsboys. Or, you know, there's... I was watching Kirk Cameron's Christmas special, which seems like oh, how my. to lie about Christmas and say everything that isn't Christian is Christian in a way that devalues Christianity. I, you are not giving us crap. I mean, people who listen to this show probably already believe that. I mean, the, the, this is, uh, I totally agree with you. I think that, and honestly, I think uh, in Jamie Smith's Desiring the Kingdom, I end up talking about this book a lot on the show. Uh, but that's sort of the core thesis of his idea of Christian education is that Christian education is not just a sanctified secular education, right? And so uh, and he's making a similar critique in that book there. I think that there are a lot of Christians who agree with you. Well, that's good. They need to actually take power. <laughs> well. um, except that, you know, your worldview actually precludes you from doing that. So, um, Hey, don't rain on our parade, man. <laughs> um, uh, no, I actually don't believe that anyone should take power in the United States solely. But it is it is interesting to me. Like, I was thinking the other day about, like, how a lot of this uh, progressive Christianity or conservative Christianity kind of seems like idolatry. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, and again, I'm not a believer. It seems like idolatry to me. So um, I can't imagine what, like, you know, someone who is trying to be biblically consistent. That's a question for another day. Um, the, the whole issue there becomes like, well, how do you subsist in this culture? And the, the actual answer is you generated this culture, but you can't subsist in it. Um, and, and this is why, you know, I say similar things to leftists. Like we can't, uh, you know, and by leftist here, I mean Marxist. We can't be part of the popular culture and also critique it as if we were already part of it. Like, that's not something you can do. That's, that's like, tr just trying to have your cake and eat it, too. Yeah. And I think that's one of the frustrating things that, like, when conservatives attack liberals and, you know, most liberals just go, nah, -uh. <laughs> but some of the stuff actually hits. The veiled class uh, hatred, the contempt for regular people, the contempt for people who don't live in urban metropoles. You know, most of those people aren't Trump voters. If the, if, if the, if the voting statistics are right, they're not voters at all. Yeah. I mean, they just, they just don't believe in politics. Anymore. They disengaged completely. Um, and, and right. I, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. Um, well, they I, see no, they see no role in the civic world. I mean, like that, that should be terrifying to people, not just not just liberals, honestly. Right. I mean, because that's a populace that is then ready for dictatorship, I would think, on some level. Well, I mean, yeah, because it, it, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you, because I, I, live, I live in a place where there is a, a military rule. There, are, there is de democracy in Egypt and the parliamentary level. 
but the military gets to dominate the executive. And people care, but they don't care a lot. It doesn't affect your daily life that much. I'm not going to lie. Like, totalitarian visions of authority, that just isn't the way most of the world works. And that's kind of a fluke of late modernism. Hmm. Like, most tyrants, if they want to stay in power, they don't mess with everybody's everyday life. Right. Um, You know, what they do is when things start getting hard. Like, you take someone's internet away, they actually care more than if you take their vote. Yeah. Which is bizarre, but it's also true. Mm. And, you know, I think that's fundamentally true with Christians. I've been amazed, frankly amazed, at how fast Christians folded on the Trump issue. There's a a resistance. (laughs) Yeah, but not, but, like, look at the the stats for evangelicals. We just, like... I, I don't even understand how to justify it. Well, I what I would say, I don't know about justifying, but explaining it, towards explaining it at least, is I think evangelicals do have this deference for celebrity, uh, just as liberals do. And I think that not only is Trump a celebrity, but the people who are our quote-unquote spokespeople, in the absence of a pope, um, we defer to people like uh uh, Billy Graham and his spawn, right, and Jerry Falwell and his spawn, and, and so, so to bring in Lenin, to bring in Lenin to Christianity for a moment, not in his everything Christian is bad sense, but in absence of authority, uh, charisma replaces legitimacy. Uh, this seems uh, like an accurate description of much of the evangelical deference to. Um, celebrity authority, I think, is a great, great. Yeah, way like, to put this, it. like, why does anyone care what the son of Billy Graham thinks? I mean, I can see why you might care what Billy Graham thinks, but I, why I've his asked, son? I've asked this question for for weeks, for months now. It's, I I don't know. I I don't. I, it's it's a kind of weird monarchy that we've yeah. constructed for ourselves. Right. But yeah. So so you just have, you have a counterposed celebrity culture there too, and, and and in a weird sense though, I mean, here's the thing about secular conservatism. That celebrity culture isn't going to hurt them because they don't. There's nothing they believe that would that would necessarily oppose that. Now, the idea that Trump is somehow a populist that doesn't represent the which the wheels of the very rich is sort of laughable. Yeah, he's a certain kind of rich person and has different interests than the banking sector and the fiscal sector that normally gets represented. But Goldman Sachs picked the the fiscal cabinet for. For most of his cabinet, for most of Obama's cabinet, for most of the Clinton cabinet, for most of the Bush cabinet. So this is why I I'm reluctant to kind of take part of this. Don't normalize Trump rhetoric. I I don't no, see him it's, as it's, it, that's silly. Yeah. I mean, even if even if Trump was hyper racist, he has said he hasn't even said things as bad as Woodrow Wilson or Harry Truman. <laughs> I mean, that's just you know. Or Ronald Reagan, or hell, even like some of the race baiting that that uh, Bill Clinton did and has right. done. Right. I mean, it's uh, even stuff like the burning of the flag thing. Like Hillary Clinton sponsored a bill with a Republican that was going to pass the same law, which is just as unconstitutional as Trump's Twitter feed tweet. Right. Like, and I, I know protesting Hillary Clinton now is stupid. But that cynicism is, is is like totally not new. Yeah. It's just now on Twitter. <laughs> well, <clears throat> yeah, and I think that I, I don't want to say that Trump is in no way different, but no, I, he is different. I don't think he's as different as we would like to believe he is. I would actually think the racial stuff isn't how he's different. The, the difference is actually that his economic platform is. Yeah. More incoherent. Yeah. I mean, but has more mass appeal because it's incoherent. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's that's my teaching style. So. <laughs> incoherent. Yeah. And mass appeal. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a good thing you're a literature professor. <laughs> um, so, you know, so, I mean, how do you fight this? Well, the one thing you shouldn't do, in addition to the stuff about Trump, which is the most transparent inherently counterproductive thing I could have. And I thought this before I read that article. I couldn't believe that, that was where they were going. When people were like, and fight Trump. I'm like, seriously? Seriously. <laughs> like, this is where you're going right now. Like, you don't see 
how this is going to backfire. Hell, you might make links to German nationalism, and it may even make if you really believe what you say about the population being totally, you know, depraved and reprobate, racist, then it might even help him anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Rally support for him, yeah. (laughs) Like, I mean, like, come on, you can't believe all these things. Like, one of these things can't be true. Um, so... Well, I want to throw my last question out at you here because um, uh-huh. uh, we both have to run. Uh, and again, Derek, I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been already a fascinating conversation, and I want to right now invite you to come back as much as often as you like. But, um, sure. but much of this, but, go ahead. As long as you don't get like excommunicated or something, I don't know. Do Protestants uh, do that? Do? <laughs> do Protestants excommunicate? I don't know. I if that's true, I've probably been. Like at least unofficially excommunicated for for a long time. So yeah, I've. Uh, you guys just call it disfellowshipped. Is that the nice way to say you're going to hell? I, I I come from a low Protestant tradition. I don't think we even think in those technical terms. Uh yeah. Oh we, okay. We just like stop tweeting at you. I don't know, but um, but um, so but much of the style of politics explains Hillary Clinton's unexpected failing among the general electorate in certain states. I think as we've established. Right. However, weren't many of Bernie Sanders supporters partaking in a similar type of hero worship and, and, Trump, oh, yeah. and Trump himself is of course a reality TV star and so is the question not whether celebrity politics is effective but what type of celebrity we're talking about well I think it's, the, it's, it's, it's part of it was the hint that I said with the conservatives aren't going to have the same problem with celebrity politics because they're not making an appeal to reason Really, anyway. I right. mean, even if conservatives Good. believe in reason, I mean, and not to say that conservatives are on reasoning. I know some conservatives that are smarter than liberals and more reasoned, but most of them do not believe humans are actually rational animals. So they have a different place to stand on. As for Bernie, um, I'm going to go out on the uh, on a limb and say yes, Bernie probably would have done better than Trump on the margin. Although we can't really foresee what would have happened with a socialist atheist Jew running for president and that not being called out. Um, Yeah, that's not normal. Uh, So, I mean, you know, um, but the the, the thing about Bernie Sanders is Bernie Sanders is, is not even really that much of a socialist. He's more Keynesian. And a lot of the hopes and dreams placed on him were just as false because even more than Trump, he would have came to power with his own party opposing him and the other party thinking he was the devil. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what would he have done? I mean, you want to see McCarthyism come back? That would have happened. So, yeah, I mean, he would have had more mass appeal than Hillary Clinton. The thing is with celebrity politics is how much do you believe in spectacle? And... How do you how do you reengage politically in an age of media that that we exist in right now? I mean, Christians have to really ask themselves this because you can't like just put your head in the sand and pretend social media doesn't exist. Mm. And uh, every marginal group uses it. I mean, the reason why there are Marxist and there are large numbers of Marxists. I mean, still still probably only like two percent of the population. Um, exists now is Occupy and Occupy exists because of social media. Hmm. In the in the 90s and in the 2000s, that would have never happened. In the early 2000s, that would have never happened. Even though the internet was a thing. I mean, that's also why there's all these ca- uh, countercultural religions springing up. You know, the spread of a cult as a popular as a pop cultural phenomenon um, tends to be because of social media. Christians don't seem to have been able to use it very well. Hmm. And I think because they're in a similar position to liberals where they think they're both apart from the culture and they are it. Hmm. Well, you can't be both things. You can't, you can't be, you know, separate, separate from the Gentile, so to speak. Um, and also the Gentile. Hmm. Um, you can't be, you can't be, uh, you can't be separate from the world and also the entire damn world. Yeah. I mean, like, that. you can't do that. And, you know, it, it's one of these things where, 
I hate to be like Christians should learn from Marxists, but you know, because in some ways we're ideological competitors. Um, but uh, you, you you kind of really should. <laughs> so, well, you know, we, we we don't. You can't speak for people that you aren't. Yeah. So. I mean, one thing I'll I'll give the Marxists is I mean there is a comfortable comfortableness with existing on the margins, right? Uh, and uh, and and Christians aren't willing to accept that. Yeah, but it's because you it's it's because you you, you think you ever you had control of pop culture at one time or another. Yeah, and that you dominated the main cultural life of the country. And maybe you did, but that was always going to be a secularization game. I mean, like, yeah, like again, I don't mean out Christian Christians, but your Kirk, your basic reading of Kierkegaard should have told you how that was going to go. Christians don't read Kierkegaard. Come on. Yeah, I guess that's like when uh, the the uh, president of Iran said that Americans had all read the Tome. <laughs> yeah, I, I um, saw you posted that. That was very <laughs> that was very kind of him. I was like. The Iranian president thinks high more highly of us than I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Derek, I, I got to say, I, this was great. The conversation went places I didn't necessarily anticipate, but that is totally fine. I find you fascinating, and I think that you bring a really great perspective uh, to these conversations. And I, I was really, really happy to, uh, to speak with you today. Um, do you have any kind of final thoughts? You know, uh, no, um, I mean, I would normally end with my liberalismist Delinda-esque charge, but um, I just think people should listen to people who don't share their worldview, and I don't just mean, like, superficially talk and mock. I mean, actually listen. Yeah. Because, you know, I learn a lot from listening. I learn more from listening to the Christian Humanist Network than almost any atheist podcast, and I'm I'm not religious, and... And I was, you know, I was raised around the Baptist church, although my mother was Catholic and my father was a Jew. So, and they, my father was a Jew converted to Buddhism. So, like, I, I know my religion and the, I don't come from your world, but um, the Christian Humanist Network really does give good insights into what, you know, understanding Western culture and our culture, American culture and all that. You do have to really understand Christianity. Um, and I, I'm just going to go ahead and say, right now it doesn't seem like Christians understand Christianity. Well, very well, so and there's a lot of Christians agree with you on that. You, I'm glad you exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, Derek, thanks again. Uh, this was awesome. I will definitely be inviting you back. This was very, very interesting, and uh, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again. All right, I'll be back. Take care. Thank you.